0: Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping take control of your health. And today we are joined by Bobby Kennedy, who really needs no introduction. If you've been following this space, he's been a real activist in promoting uh, environmental Issues, but also re- more recently with the the uh, vaccine issue. So we we both been <laughs> we're number one and number two in the misinformation dozen, and uh, we both had the privilege of being censored by actually banned from YouTube's platform for not breaking any rule, except one they invented the day they banned us. <laughs> we had no strikes, nothing. Boom, they removed 20 years of my content and you know, over 15 years, whatever it was, because we were in from the beginning and also all of Bobby. So, uh, and I'm just really delighted that Bobby wrote the forward to my book, which is The Truth About COVID, which did really, really well, thanks to all the discrediting. But Bobby's got a new book coming out the real Anthony Fauci. And it is unbelievable. He's spent many, many hours, really dedicated a big portion of his life to doing the investigative journalism and pulling out the details. And this is a book you've got to get. So we're going to talk a little bit about it, but I can assure you with the highest degree of confidence that we could talk for hours and hours and hours and not cover but a fraction of what's in this book. It is a long book, detailed. It's a, it's a, one that's going to keep your attention and you'll really love and enjoy it. So I would strongly recommend it, but we're going to touch on the highlights because we don't have a lot of time and we'll do the best we can.
1: So welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Joan. Thanks. You know, a lot, most of the time you do interviews with people who have not read the book, but I know you were we were sending you chapter by chapter as I got it finished. And you were the first one to read it. And you read it all the way through. And it is a very long book. It's got a tremendous, uh, uh, I think 2000 footnotes and it 2000 references. Um and it, it is uh, and it's just got a lot of lot of detail, but it's it's a very is a very devastating indictment of Tony Fauci and his career in the way that he has essentially made NIH an incubator for pharmaceutical products mm-hmm. and sold us all of our country to the pharmaceutical industry.
0: I don't know there's any better indictment against Fauci than the book you've written. I'm certainly there's many articles, but a, a completely comprehensive, detailed, Referenced incredibly well, referenced uh, record of his history of decimating human health, uh, in spite of his charade of being a, a charlatan as being this ostensible public health do-gooder that's uh, out to save humanity. He's doing the exact opposite. So there's so many places where you can start. Uh, I'll let you pick where you want because we can go into. I mean, so and I particularly enjoyed the the context you put him in, comparing him to, to, to Rockefeller, you know, and, and putting, putting that all in, because Rockefeller kind of started this over a century ago and Fauci's picking up where he left off.
1: Yeah. I mean, what Rockefeller did was he basically, um, this a time when his, his oil interests were, um, had made him the richest person in world history. He's still the richest person in world history. Um, if you if you look at his wealth compared to everybody else who lived on the planet at that time, uh, he owned about eighty percent of the oil production on the planet. And they realized at one point that pharmaceutical products could be synthesized from uh, from the byproducts of their refinery process. His father, John Deeds, father, uh, Devil Bill Rockefeller, had been a, um, a, a I guess you would call it a medicine show. Yeah. The, the,
0: the, the true snake oil salesman <laughs> you know, who actually
1: was selling literally snake oil and yeah. you know, a lot of opium based products and alcohol based products that allowed people to uh, to drink to get drunk to get a high on um, on medicine and. Uh, and John D. Rockefeller threw himself back into that. He commissioned them, and they Andrew Flexer across the country and look at all the medical schools. And at that time, about half the medical schools in the country were um, were a, a, integrative medicine. They were obviously They were They did homeopathy, they did uh, naturopathy, they did a lot of herbs and traditional medicine it said it was really it was an american uh science and, Flexner went, and i'm sure there were lots of problems with that kind of medicine you know there's boxers in every kind of medicine and i'm sure there were there too but lexner went across the country and did a report that said that everything should be based on pharmaceutical products on um, you know on the kind of products that were being made by for uh, Rockefeller's partners, he had huge stakes in pharmaceutical companies. And um, and they transformed all the, med- they got rid of all of those schools of the chiropractor, ch- chiropractors, uh, for osteopaths, naturopaths, homeopaths, and they integrated all medical schools. And the pharmaceutical paradigm, he did that at the same time in China and the Rockefeller name is still very, very big in China. I think he started 12 medical schools or hospitals in China and did the same thing, tried to transfer uh, uh, traditional Chinese medicine and to get the Chinese to adopt the pharmaceutical paradigm. And in many ways, as I show in the book, Bill Gates and Tony Fauci are the apogee of that trajectory. And they have, you know, Bill Gates summons Tony Fauci, who is Washington, Seattle, Washington mansion on the banks of Lake Washington in the year 2000 and, and bought him into his library for a private meeting and said to him, I wanna be partners with you. And their partnership was uh, a, an agreement to, vaccinate the entire population of the world with a battery of uh, of new vaccines and they called the in 2009 they rebranded their partnership for the decade of the vaccine and that part that uh, the objective of that crusade was to to have mandatory vaccination for every adult and child on the planet by the year 2020. And I show how they use these pandemic simulations working with the uh, very, very closely with the intelligence agencies, with the social media companies, um, with the the big media companies, and with the major pharmaceutical companies to make that happen. And Gates calls what he does, capitalism. It's a way that you can use philanthropy to make money. Oh, he had a foundation that is where he has sheltered you know, $50 billion in a tax-deductible tax-free money. Mm-hmm. And yet he continues to have absolute control over it. And he uses that money to gain controls of the public health agencies and our country, the WHO. He's created a lot of his own with Dr. Fauci, a lot of these quasi governmental agencies that people think are governmental, but they're actually just front groups of the pharmaceutical industry like Gavi and CEPI and Brighton collaboration. And he uses this battery and this control of WHO to set a pharmaceutical or medical policy, public health policy around the globe in a way that maximizes the profits from his stakeholding in these big pharmaceutical companies. I show also, in a very minor way, he's simultaneously doing the same thing to control the global food supply. Um, and, you know, GMO crops and huge investments in Cargill, Monsanto, processed foods, like Kraft, McDonald's, Coca-Cola is the biggest investor. And really trying to change both public health and and food policies in ways that benefit corporations that he's invested in and that he's partnered with.
0: Yeah, so thank you for summarizing that, but uh, the book goes into far more detail with respect to the history of Fauci, uh, because he just didn't turn evil when he met Gates. He had a three decade history prior to Gates, Uh, and you, you. uh, document that quite extensively, especially with the HIV. I mean, he, th- this is no mystery. This is he, this is essentially a repeat button, pl- repeat play button that he's done with HIV. What he's doing here, just at a bigger scale. So, uh, why why don't you discuss the, that? Because it, it, if you know it, that history, it's no surprise.
1: Yeah, with the HIV, he just taken taken over um, the National Institute for Allergic and Infectious Diseases. And at that time, AIDS hit, in 1981, there was AIDS But all of that, but because the first signal of AIDS was Kaposi's sarcoma, which was a cancer, skin cancer, that defle- afflicted gay men, the project went, the whole AIDS program, went to the National Cancer Institute, the separate institute inside HHS. And when Robert Gallo in 1983 and Luke Montier said, wait a minute, this may be caused by a virus, an HIV virus, because originally everybody believed it was called, caused by poppers and by the abuse of, um, of these of psychotropic drugs, of, of methadrine, heroin, uh, LSD, and other drugs, but particularly poppers. That were part of the gay party scene after Stonewall, and, and, and all of the people, the original people who were diagnosed with carpal every one of them was a very, very extensive property user. So, the original assumption was that this was a chemical problem and it had a chemical etiology, and, and what when Luke Montagnier and Bart, Robert Gallo said, no, this is, we found this virus in many of the people who have AIDS. I think there were 47% of them. And that was an opportunity for uh, for Tony Fauci because he was able to have a battle with National Cancer Institute and say, um, this is a viral disease, therefore it's an infectious disease and it's under my jurisdiction. And He was able to win that program away on um, the, the same year that billions of dollars began flowing into HIV. And he had to create a, uh, uh, the agency really from the ground up. And the way that he did it was to partner with Lacto, was then with the welcome truck, welcome, Burroughs Welcome Company, which made AZT. AZT was a, a chemotherapy formulation that was so toxic, it killed all the rats when they gave it to them, that the inventor of AZT felt that it was unsafe for any human use, and he didn't even patent it. And very early on, the National Cancer Institute found out that when you put AZT in a culture of HIV, that it killed HIV. Not surprisingly, it killed anything it touched. And so um, Tony Fauci partnered with Burroughs Walken. Literally, he became a partner and he guided that formulation through the, uh, through the, the regulatory process. And he got it very, very fast-tracked. He cheated terribly on the clinical trials, the clinical trials It was killing everybody. It literally kills everybody who takes it but he was able to keep the people in the placebo group or he was able to keep the people in the treatment group alive by giving them huge numbers of transfusions of blood transfusions to just keep them alive for the eight weeks that that trial continued. And based upon that eight week trial, he got approval. It was unprecedented of that drug and as Carrie Mullis, who won the Nobel Prize for discovering the PCR test, said even with, with any chemotherapy, drug, you're supposed to get somebody for two weeks. And and chemotherapy is designed to kill every cell in your body, but hopefully it kills tumor cells first. And you can take the person off it. The tumor dies, if you time it right, and the person doesn't die. If you put somebody on that for life, like Tony Fauci was doing, it, every one of them is going to die, and that's what happened. And the um, and meanwhile, there was a lot of drugs at that time that were repurposed medications, like aerosol Kennedy, many many others. That that uh, local community-based doctors in San Francisco and New York who were treating the AIDS community were finding that these. Uh, Drugs treated the symptoms of AIDS and they stopped people from dying. Yeah, the symptoms... Tony Fauci made a deliberate deliberate crusade to sabotage the drugs and to make sure they were not available to sick people in order to make sure that AZT would be the the only solution. And AZT was the most expensive drug in history. It was $10,000 for a one year dose and, uh, and, you know, uh, which later became black, so the line doubled in size because of that. And Tony Fauci basically created this template that he would then use over the next 45 years to develop drug after drug, these toxic drug after toxic drugs, to kill repurposed medication, to kill early treatment, to kill any protocol that competed with his pharmaceutical enterprise,
0: and a lot of people have died. Yeah, well, it's, a, it's more than a lot. It's 330,000 people dead from AZT alone. That's at least, yeah. least what you wrote in the book. And, and additionally, the cost of that drug is the, the, the analogies or similarities between that scenario and what's happening today are almost identical. The, the, the Fauci dis encourage the use of the drugs, as you mentioned, specifically wants to, to, pe- to treat, not it's a composite saccharoma, but also pneumocystis, churinia, and pneumonia. Well, you know, simple drugs like Bactrim would work really well, but they discouraged it. And they were inexpensive and relatively non-toxic. But is this similar to the ways discouraging ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine? But the cost, this is the thing that I did, that co- $10,000 for a treatment for, for that drug, for AZT, it cost them $5, $5. And my guess is, although I don't recall reading the book and you may know, is that the research that was paid, that, that supported the development of that drug was probably paid for by the U.S. taxpayers.
1: Yeah, you know, the entire, the entire development of that drug was financed through the National Cancer Institute. At one point, the CEO of Glaxo uh, wrote an editorial because people were you know, in the gay community saying, why is this costing us $10,000 when it's only $5 for them develop the dose, they are telling it for 10,000. he wrote a very, very self-congratulatory uh, editorial in the New York Times saying, uh, you know, the usual stuff in the pharmaceutical industry um, says it doesn't find these outrageous prices, which is we spend hundreds of thousands of dollars developing these drugs, and you know, it's a crapshoot, and many of them don't work, and it's hard, it's expensive to get approval. Well, the... The the director then of NCI
2: published a letter to the editor saying, wait a minute, here's what the taxpayer paid for, everything, and Burroughs Welcome did nothing. And, and not only that, but Burroughs Welcome would not even test the drug because it was terrified of handling HIV.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: So it told... You know, the people at HHS, at the government agency, do not send any samples over to us. You do it yourself. So, they, so the taxpayer paid for everything. And Pearl's welcome, all they did, because of Tony Fauci, all they did was cash in. And they killed a huge, huge number of, of I mean, they, they killed a huge number of people. Yeah, and he's upped his game. So,
0: you know, a third of a million people. I can do better than that because he repeated the same damn behavior with the vaccines for for the jabs for covid, which uh, essentially is the same scenario. That is taxpayer funded research. And I believe the last projections I saw are an estimate of one hundred billion dollars in profits from those those jabs in one year, in one year. This is going to be a semi annual every six month booster requirement. But it, and
1: all and and no zero liability, liability, zero liability, and yeah. and well, that's a subsidy, of course. That's their biggest subsidy. But you know, and I, I have another chapter that basically is the same thing. It's all about you know, everything in Johnny Fauci's career is round day. <laughs> again and again and again, he is doing repeating the same behavior that it is paying off. And he has this abuncular manner and this way of talking where he never really says anything and this habit of just um, lying and lying and lying. But people believe him because he, he you know, people call him Teflon Tony. He can mis- make mistake after mistake and none of them are ever fatal. And
2: my, I knew a lot about the inside of what happened during the HIV crisis. Because my uncle, Teddy Kennedy, was chair of a health committee at that time. And I and Teddy was the first uh, presidential candidate to court the gay vote. And so, you know, uh, we were and I was running part of his campaign at that time. And I campaigned in the Castro with Teddy, the first uh, presidential candidate ever to go into the Castro and to go part of our shake hands, make speeches, do stuff. And, and say, and invite the gay community into mainstream American life. And when he, um, and in the health committee, his primary concern for most of the time was AIDS. He, he recruited the first openly gay chief of staff, Terry Byrne, and the first uh, staff member on Capitol Hill for a decade who was openly had HIV. And he ran it and they were at constant odds with tony fauci trying to get him <laughs> to use repurposed medicines and i talk about this in my book um and fa- finally tony fauci was called in front of congress and was just filleted and there's a, there's a, a dialogue of what um you know, Nancy Pelosi was one of the people who when Henry Waxman and, you know, all of these well-known Democratic congressmen who were saying, what the hell are you doing? No, you've, you've produced nothing. You're totally incompetent. And he uh, and after that, his career was over. And he decided at that point, okay, I'm gonna work on these, I'm getting these uh, repurposed drugs on the market. And he did that for a couple of years. And he had a project, which was a dual dual track project where they, they could, without going through the clinical project in FDA, with clinical trials in FDA, randomized, placebo-controlled trials, they could get approval for these drugs so that people can get insurance for them and pay for them. And he named that, Fauci named that after Terry Byrne, my uncle's aide. So I was sort of deeply involved in this for many, many years. I I've known Tony Fauci for a long time. And I have insights on who he really is. That most liberal Democrats. Are utterly ignorant of. They look at him. They think he's the savior. He's the steady hand during the chaotic Trump administration. Who is pro science and he is the opposite of everything they believe. He is the architect who turned our public health system over to the pharmaceutical industry. When Tony Fauci came to office in 1968, the chronic disease rate in American children was six percent. Like two thousand six, it was fifty four percent. Oh, he does not do public health, and and there is no metric at NIH where they look and they say we are improving public health. The only metric they have is how many vaccines have we given, how many pharmaceutical drugs have we sold, how many, how much uh, bat money are we getting back into the agency, and. As I explain in the book, this agency has become an incubator for the pharmaceutical industry. Mm-hmm. But Tony Fauci does with that $6.1 billion budget that he gets from the taxpayer and then another 1.6 from the military to do bioweapons research, which is where his most 68% of his salary comes from weapons research. And that's why he had to do that a function uh, shenanigans in Wuhan. He had to do it because he had to hold on to his salary, and his salary, most of his salary comes from the military
1: mm-hmm.
2: and from bio, from bioweapons research, but the rest of that money, Congress intended him to study American health and to improve it, to try to eliminate infectious allergic diseases, autoimmune diseases, but instead under his watch, the chronic disease epidemic exploded, and he can, he can he controls between him and Gates and Welcome Trust, which is the UK version of the Gates Foundation. They control. By the way, Welcome Trust is the stock portfolio for Burroughs Welcome, the mm-hmm. company that made uh, AZT. made AZT is now Blackstone and Klein. And between those three entities, and they all work in tandem. They talk to each other constantly. They're all friends. Deep personal confederates or cronies, I would say. They control 63% of the biomedical research on earth. But the fact is they really control all of it because not only do they fund it, but they have the capacity to cut off funding. Mm -hmm. If there's somebody who wants to do what Tony Fauci is supposed to do, listen, and you're in my generation, Joe, the autism rate is one in 10,000. You know, you, you will never meet a 67-year-old man with a football helmet, with diapers, non train, non-verbal, head-banging, stimming, toe-walking, full-blown autism. I've never seen somebody like that my age. Right. And like his generation, one in 22 boys looks like that. Why did that happen? When Congress said the EPA, tell us what year the autism epidemic began, EPA said it's our red line, 1989. Something happened in 1989 that brought us food allergies, peanut allergies, if you, all your Tourette syndrome, on, on narcolepsy, ticks, ADD, ADHD, speech delay, language LA, rheumatoid arthritis, autoimmune diseases like juvenile diabetes, all of them went epidemic beginning around 1989. Tony Fauci's job is to say, why did that happen? It has to be an environmental toxin. Genes don't cause epidemics They may provide the vulnerability, but they cannot cause an epidemic. You need an environmental toxin. Yeah. All we have to do is figure out which one started in 89 and became ubiquitous the same year. Tony Fauci, if anybody tries to do that study, their career will be ruined. And we know what it has to be. It has to be either the vaccines, which exploded in 89. And by the way, every one of those 170 chronic diseases, the only epidemic beginning in 1989 is listed as a side effect on on the manufacturer's inserts of those vaccines. So that's a prime suspect. There's other things that happened. Glyphosate happened and became ubiquitous. But well, that was mostly the nineties.
0: Could... That was mostly the 90s, but that was mostly the 90s glyphosate. Yeah,
2: 93 really. Yeah. It became ubiquitous. Yeah. It started in 73, though they got, yeah. you know, yeah. months small months. started marketing it, but it was small. It was when they it got huge in 93 when they invented uh, roundup ready corn. And then yeah. it got put on everything when they began doing the genetic manipulation. Uh, Neonicotinoid pesticides, mm-hmm. uh, cell phones. Uh, well, cell phones uh, really wasn't that. That, that was not The, so the really smartphone play. was
0: 2010. But what the key thing, the key year is 1986 when they passed the the Child Adverse Reaction Liability Act that allowed them immunity against prosecution.
2: Exactly, and that's why in '89 the vaccine schedule exploded because yeah, now absolutely. it was an old rush. But it was also, you know, you also have ultrasound which had shared at the same time on PFOAs, which are inflammatory. You know, our kids are swimming around in a toxic soup. Mm -hmm. And it could be all of those things. It could be one or another, but you know, it's easy to find out. You just do the Mm -hmm. science and that science is easy to do, but it will never be done as long as Tony Fauci's office, because he doesn't want us to know, because those are the industries he has survived by protecting.
0: Yeah, and then in your book, what, uh, you cite a statistic that I've just been astonished with, and, I, and in many of the interviews I've done since I read that, I, I include it and put a plug for your book in, because you say that at the time it was nine hundred and thirty billion dollars with a B that he's been responsible for distributing through the NIA, NIAID. Yeah. I'm sure it's over it's over one trillion dollars now. One yeah. trillion dollars. Yeah.
1: And the amount of money and. As I said, you know, beginning in 2000, when we had the anthrax attacks, we signed a a, a biological weapons treaty and chemical weapons treaty in 72. So the Pentagon was not allowed to do biological weapons research. But after the anthrax attacks, they, they wanted to do it very badly,
2: but they didn't want to do it from the Pentagon because it would look like weapons research but there was a loophole in the treaty that said if you're doing dual use research in other words you're doing research to develop biological weapons but if they also could be applicable to developing vaccines then you can do it so they were reluctant to do it in the Pentagon, but they began funneling all the money to Tony Fauci to do it. And he really became part of the military at that point. And he began doing this bioweapons research. And they gave him a 68% raise because of his authority over the bioweapons research. And because of that, and they give him $1.76 billion a year. And so to hold on to that funding stream, to hold on to his salary. He has got to do by a, a gain of function. The gain of function has never provided a single scientific or medical development that has assisted us in responding to pandemics, not one. And, but Fauci continues to do it because it, it is critical to his salary. And it's critical to that funding stream that he continues to do that get that funding stream from dark from Barda and you know from the from the Pentagon
0: well it would sound like a lot of money, and he is the most the high, most highly paid federal employee I believe like far ahead of the president.
1: you get um, four hundred and thirty seven thousand a year the president moves the next guy is, is four hundred.
0: Yeah, so he's the highest paid federal employee. But to me, that seems a relatively small amount when you consider the other dollar values involved. And if he's because there's patents and there's I mean, when you're distributing a a trillion dollars, all you need is a small fraction of that. And he's a smart guy. One thing you cannot take away from him is he's an incredible politician. He's he's really smart and clever. Uh, he certainly question his ethics and integrity, but he's, I, it seems to me smart enough to figure out how to hide this. So he may be get the 400,000, maybe a small fraction of what he's really earning every year.
1: Well, you know, I was not able to find any, um, any money that he is getting outside of that. Now he's gotten, um, millions of dollars in and awards. Mm-hmm. Oh, the Israeli government gave him, I think a million dollars, and so he has a lot of other funding. Trend. but I don't really, you know, I think it's important to understand that most people, people like that, like him, and even like Abe, they're not really interested in currency. Nobody really cares about how much, you know, cash money you have. They really, you know, they people accumulate money because they want power, mm-hmm. and his agency gets the money from the patents. He has, we know he has one, at least one patent on interferon and and that information is almost impossible to get. Um, But that patent gives him about $150,000 a year. He's claimed for a long
2: time that that he gives that money to charity, but nobody knows what (laughs) charity he gives it to. And he has never, and of course the press never asks him anything and he never says um, but what he does is, you know, he's allowed. But let, let me tell you how important he is to the pharmaceutical industry. Mm-hmm. Between 2009 and 2016, there were about 230 drugs approved by FDA, all of which came out of his shop. Yeah. <laughs> so, and so he is an incubator for pharma. And here's what he does he has, at his lab, he has petri dishes filled with every um, virus, HIV, dengue virus, uh, coxsackie virus, uh, Zika, uh, Ebola, uh, flu, coronavirus. And he has scientists that are messing around with different molecules and different poisons, and they'll drop you know those poisons into a petri dish and see if it kills the culture. If it kills the culture, then he has a potential antiviral drug. So the next step is they give it to rats and see if it kills the rats. And if most of the rats survive, now you have a potential antiviral that may work in humans. So then he farms it out to the university. Now the university is, a, the person that goes to at the university is usually a very powerful person at the university. It's the dean of the medical school, or it's the chair of one of the departments, and they run the clinical trials, which is extremely lucrative they will do the phase one trial there and they'll recruit maybe hundred people for the phase one trial. Fauci gives that PI, that principal investigator, maybe $20,000 per recruit. The university skims off 50 to 75% of that. So now the university is now hooked into the system. Then if it works through phase one and phase two and they have to bring in big groups of people, 10,000 people. And you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars and they have to bring in a pharmaceutical company and now takes control of about half the patent. Tony Fauci's agency keeps a share of the patent and they can now collect royalties on Moderna uh, vaccine. They're, they get half the royalties. So they're getting billions of dollars in the, on um, the, University researcher keeps some of the patents. So he is now permanently attached to Tony Fauci and will do anything what he says. And the university itself is getting some of that patent. So it, it's hundreds of millions of dollars that are going to these universities every year in addition to the grants that he's giving. And he can cut all that off if, if somebody at the university does the wrong study. So, and then, and then then it has to go back and go through, once it goes through phase three, it goes to FDA. And he says, well, those are independent scientists at FDA. The panel is called Verpack, and they're well, they're not people who work for FDA. They're outside who are brought in. Well, where are they brought in from, they're Tony Fauci's PIs from all the other universities who are working on his other projects. And they're brought in to rubber stamp whatever drug is coming from Baylor University that week. And they then, you know, okay it and give it, the, uh, give it a, 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 a license because they know that next year their drug is going to be in front of that committee and they are going to want the committee to rubber stamp that. So that committee never says no, it always greenlights everything and it's completely controlled by Fauci. He controls the whole process. And, and, no,
0: and, just- and, that, and that I just want to, sorry for interrupting, but the, we just have a classic illustration of what you just shared in that this week, that very committee, 17 to zero, unanimously approved the COVID jab for five to 11 year olds. And you've written some brilliant articles on it this week. And I thank you for doing it, exposing the truth of this nonsense implementation and approval.
1: Yeah, and if, recommendation look, for approval. and if you look at the pedigrees for those people who sit on the committee, you will see that they have conflicts of interest. They're accepting money from the pharmaceutical companies, they're accepting money from, you know. Uh, Congress did one report that said 97% of them are getting money from pharmaceutical companies whose products they are approving. They're getting money from NIH, they're getting money from Gates, and they're completely bought and uh, and owned. And they're not independent scientists. at all these are the same people you see on CNN every night. Peter Hotez, uh, Paul Offit, uh, Art Kaplan, Stanley Perlman, all of these people who are supposed to be experts, who are independent experts. They're not independent experts. Every expert you see on CNN is on Tony Fauci's payroll and CNN will never tell you that. It will say,
2: this is an independent virologist, He's an immunologist at Baylor University or Stanford or Harvard, and they're not telling you where that guy's bread is being buttered. And that the person is buttering it is Tony Fauci with your taxpayer dollars. So the whole system is just fixed. And you know, people in this country, feel there's a certain group of uh, 33% of the people in this country who are very angry. And the reason they're angry is not because they have to wear masks and it's not even because they have to get vaccines. It's because they feel they're being manipulated.
1: Mm -hmm. They're being
2: lied to. Their democracy has been subverted and it's being stolen from them.
0: So thank you for sharing that. And this within the last few weeks, there's been a, I mean, your book, I mean, you started writing it a while ago, certainly last year, uh, but it's emerging all these lies are coming out and there's a, there's a significant portion of the alternative media, at least that's calling for Fauci's, Fauci's resignation because of his line. He's just caught in all these things that the the, the lab origin theory that he was promoting and his double takes and continually shifting the goalposts. So, I'm wondering what your perspective on because you've done such a deep dive. In, I mean, what do, you, what do you think the likelihood of his, his being resigning? Is it pro- pro- probably close to impossible?
2: No, I think it's 100% that he'll resign. I think after uh, my book comes out, what's gonna happen is um, I think the, uh, for better or for worse, the Republicans are gonna take control of the Senate in mm-hmm. November and, and you're gonna have hearings. And as soon as you have know those hearings, he's gonna resign because he cannot he cannot survive. At this point, with everything people know with all the lies he's been caught in that have caught up with him, mm-hmm. he's not gonna be able to endure okay. a public hearing. And That's so I, I don't think I think he's gonna become such a liability so quickly. And you know all of this stuff that comes out now that really that Probably should not be as significant as it is, but it pulls on people's heartstrings. And I take back what I said because, it, 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 and I'm talking about Beagle Gate, about uh, you know about him yeah, doing the Beagle the Beagle terrible, Beagle. terrible, sadistic experiments on animals. You know, gluing, the, the, taking the scalps off of fully formed human fetuses and stitching them to rats so that they get to humanize rats, that won't reject them, you know, won't produce antibodies. And so the, the fetus scalp begins to grow as the fur of the rat so that they can test shampoos and see if they make you itch or cause sores or whatever. And then the beagle okay with a, you know, they took one of these experiments and there's many and they did it on monkeys and other animals too, but there are uh, 14 Healthy beagle puppies. They bought them. They severed their vocal cords so that they uh, they wouldn't. The scientists wouldn't have to listen to their agonized barking. And Tony Fauci put four hundred and fifty thousand dollars of U.S. taxpayer money into this experiment. And then they put the beagles for ninety six days into uh, put a cage over top of their head, or uh, like a netting over top of their head, a box. Uh, that's filled with carnivorous flies that eat their faces off over 96 days. And then the, the animals then euthanize after this you know, grim and miserable existence that you wouldn't do to any sentient being on the planet. Nobody, nobody who was not a sadist in his soul would allow that experiment to happen. And yet Tony Fauci deemed that the best use for $450,000 of US taxpayer money with all of the screaming needs in public health, all of the people who are suffering, all of the people who are dying, all the people who have no access to health care because they can't afford it. And he made a decision that the best use of that money, and it's, it's not just $450,000, it's millions and millions and millions that he put into these sadistic experiments. Uh, was you know torturing animals to death like I, like you'd see in a schoolyard with with little boys yeah. who don't you know who don't know any better and need to be told you don't do that to another creature and uh, and Tony Fauci doesn't have that instinct it's lacking it's a kind of sociopathy you know it and we see that it explains what he's done during covid where denying um, early treatment to millions of americans who are and and forcing them to suffer and die in their homes or on ventilators and remdesivir which is a deadly toxic drug in hospitals rather than get treated and be healthy and you know and and punishing silencing censoring de-licensing, decrediting, discrediting um, any doctor who tries to say, wait a minute, I've been treating patients and my patients aren't dying because I'm using, uh, not just hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, but an entire battery of repurposed drugs that we now know treat virtually all COVID cases, 70 to 90% of COVID deaths and hospitalizations could have been prevented. Yeah. And uh, and there are hundreds and hundreds of peer-reviewed studies that, that support that. And yet he's saying, you know, he forbids people from doing it. That's, that's really,
0: yeah.
2: that, that is a sociopath.
0: Yeah, there's no question. So yeah, and in addition to the drugs, of course, there are nutrients that we know that are, make big benefit like vitamin D and zinc. Um, And you know, during the beginning of the
1: pandemic, he said that, he said to him, what are you doing? He said, I'm taking vitamin D. But did he ever tell the American public you should be taking vitamin D? Did he ever have this conversation, you know, a fireside chat saying, you gotta lose weight. The people who are gonna die are people who are overweight. You gotta get sunlight you gotta, you got to go outdoors. you got to minimize stress in your lives. And we have to take care of each other. We have to quarantine people who are sick and show them the best care possible. Um, and no, you have no empathy. And shutting down a million businesses, is that really going to save lives? There's no study that indicated it would. And there's certainly no study that indicated it hadn't. We, as I point out in the book, if the worst... Win loss record of any
2: country in the world. We have we had we have 4.2% of the global population and we had 14.5% of the deaths. Why is anybody listening to this guy? There's no health minister in the world who has a worse track record than Tony Fauci. Oh, you know, there's there are countries in the world, many countries that had one one hundredth of our death rate per million in population. And guess what? Those are the mainly the African countries and Asian countries that as a matter of course are giving ivermectin for river blindness and giving hydroxychloroquine for malaria control. And, and they're not obese. They're not
0: obese yeah. or eating Western foods. And, right. And they have sun exposure. Yeah. So. Uh, I'm just delighted to hear that you're convinced that he's going to be forced to resign. Could be a good result, partially of your book, but of, I see. It, you know the the, the decimation he's uh, imposed upon this country with his with his policies. Uh, it, it's surprising that that won't be appreciated, but will likely get him terminated. Is his involvement in this this animal research that you just described? That that's probably going to be his death key because people will not tolerate that. And it's, it seems, if you know, that's, you just can't get around that. You can't deny well, it. You
2: know, but also, Joe, in, in my book, as you know, I, I do a chapter on those animal studies, but in that same chapter, which is called Dr. Fauci, Mr. Hyde. I <laughs> that's tell, a great title, great title. I, I tell a much worse story which is the experiments that he was done doing on Black and Hispanic children. The experiments, we know at least 85 children died. And what he did is he he arranged for the foster care um, programs Mm -hmm. in New York and six other states to be turned over to the pharmaceutical companies to test his new um, chemotherapy drugs for AIDS, for HIV. So they were testing, they wanted to test them on children to open a new market and they wanted to do test them on, on maternal um, transmission. It couldn't do tr- maternal transmission in this country except for a few black people in Tennessee and elsewhere. And I tell the story of one of those black moms who was killed, who probably didn't even have HIV. The children who he was, and then they lied. Uh, uh, Fauci's entire staff lied to her and her family for years until an AP reporter got their internal emails and showed that they knew that their drug killed her and they were denying her compensation and blaming it on, on the HIV. The, um, at the same time, they were doing these studies at incarnation, uh, a foster home in New York City and these children had no guardians, so it was illegal studies. They, to do a, a, a clinical trial on children, you need to have a guardian appointed who puts their interests first ahead of the drug companies. Ouchie didn't want that. So we allowed these studies to go forward without a legal guardian for any of these children's kids. So they had no parent watching out for them. The people who worked in the incarnation house were not doctors or nurses. So there was no medical professionals. They were mainly Dominican immigrants who were deeply compassionate, who discovered in the middle of them that they were actually being hired to, uh, to treat these children as guinea pigs and they were killing huge numbers of them. Many of the kids, didn't even have HIV. so they had no possible benefit from this drug, which is illegal. And Fauci got away with it, ultimately, there was a congressional investigation for a brief time, but like everything that gets near him, it kind of peters out. Uh, But the record is where Sam and any of these children there, that BBC did a documentary on these kids back in 2004 called Guinea Big Kids. And they interview these children who say, uh, you know, a nine-year-old kid or a 12-year-old kid who said, you know, I took the drugs. They made me feel sick. I was vomiting. I couldn't eat. I was tired all the time. It was painful. And I refused to take it. And when you refuse, they sent you down to another of Tony Fauci's PIs at Columbia Presbyterian and had them install a feeding tube To force feed these children these toxic chemotherapy drugs that they refuse to take. And so you have a scene where one little kid is warning, you know, like a 12 year old is warning a nine year old, you got to do it. You got to take them. The kid doesn't want to take it. You got to take it or they'll put in a feeding tube like they did to me. And, you know, those kids, and, and Celia Farber, who was really a brilliant researcher on my book, really helped me. Um, But she did an article also where she went up and found the cemetery in Hawthorne, New York where they were disposing of all the bodies. Mm. And it's called Gates of Cemetery and there's a big pit with a, um, with an ash turf carpet on top of it. And inside the pit when she, lifted the carpet there were hundreds tiny little coffins just piled haphazardly and there's a list of all the kids and there was like maybe a thousand people on that list children children don't die you know children it's very rare for a child to die And and he's this was like an assembly line of death and she was able to find a number of those, you know, specific names from specific Tony Fauci experiments that were on that, that, you know, uh, monument list. Anyway, it's a horrific story. It's as bad as Beaglegate is that, you know, what he did to these Black and Hispanic children is even worse. And then the next chapter in my book, which is called White Man's Burden, shows that what he he wanted to open another market for these toxic chemotherapy drugs of maternal saying showing that it women who had aids and were pregnant that he had a drug that would block transmission to their child their unborn child you couldn't do those kind of experiments in this country because you're causing so so by giving you know pregnant women the most toxic compounds known to man, to- compounds that are designed to kill DNA and human cellular structures, it's not a good thing when you give them to pregnant women. And so they went to Africa to do these experiments and the mayhem and the carnage and the death and the cover-ups, and the corruption that they employed that finally came to light, you know, but, and I show how Fauci, when, you know, people should have gone to jail and how he managed to manipulate President Bush uh, into uh, into into cooperating with his cover-up. Bush didn't know what he was doing, but he was but Fauci's expert um, technocratic manipulation of the president, which has come in handy again and again and again to bail him out of these criminal activities.
0: Yeah, well, I'm just delighted to hear that he's not likely going to continue in this craziness. So after exposing and uncovering and sharing some of the highlights, and believe me, folks, there's much more in this. And if you aren't inspired to read this book from what Bobby just shared, then I don't know got I have second thoughts. But for, I'm just curious where you would place the biggest sin or evil that he's done. Is it, is it some of the any of the ones you previously described or another one in the book or would you place it at what he's done with this pandemic?
1: Yeah, I think this is the culmination of his career. What, and he's been building for this. In fact, I have a chapter um, called Phony Pandemics where I show, he came into the agency in 68 and um, 76, you know what had happened with NIH and NIH and CDC Infectious disease mortality simply stopped happening in our country in the uh, second half of the 20th century because of nutrition, sanitation, hygiene. Um, if, if, if people are still getting measles, but it was a rash. It was subclinical and, and mumps and chickenpox and all these diseases that had taken life earlier in history, they simply stopped killing people and by the 1960s. And uh, and infectious disease became such a low, low priority that these agencies were really endangered. In, in fact, in the Reagan administration, they were going to abolish CDC because there was no infectious disease mortalities anymore. And so you had, you know, you had an internal discussions where they keep saying we need a pandemic, we need a pandemic to scare people, we need a Hispanic flu pandemic. And Fauci came in 68, 76. They had their first, they tried their first um fake pandemic. And the you know, they ended up uh, making 40 million, administering 40 million vaccines and they had an epidemic. And the pandemic materialized. in fact, the, the it was a swine flu pandemic. That um, ended up killing a total globally, the global death of this pandemic. The entire global death rate was one person, a soldier from Fort Dix. That was it. And yet they minted a global panic and they you know, put uh, billions of dollars into these companies to That's li- where they invented the liability vaccine during that pandemic. That was the first time they ever did it. And then they gave 40 million vaccines, 46 people died, and they said, oh my God, we've killed 46 people. And they, they pulled it. Then 47 now, people. 47 people. Yeah, 40. Now we've killed with this in one year, 17,000 minimum. minimum. Minimum, right? Minimum. That's a joke, Anthony, because most were never reported. But um so then they did it again in um in '86, or uh, they, they did a fake one. The next fake one they did was the bird flu pandemic in 2006, which was Jeremy Farrar, it was a young biologist who now had the Wellcome Trust and was uh, a collaborator with Algae in concealing the gain-of-function linked to coronavirus. It was the first call that he made after he realized, oh we probably created coronavirus 19 and we got to hide that and the first guy he called was the head of welcome trust and jeremy Ferrara For the next six weeks we now call their emails of how he was manipulating the who and and creating all of these phony articles for the lancet for nature um which uh, create and fortify an orthodoxy that says, anybody who mentions gain of function studies is a conspiracy theorist, and that held for two years. Now it's beginning to break down. He was the guy who, he found a duck in Vietnam. He was a biologist in Vietnam, living off of, the camp of welcome trust, money, and uh, working with the Chinese, and he found that a girl got sick after her duck had died and then was, for some reason, the duck was unburied. And that story became bird flu. Now, bird flu is is really dangerous. Okay, bird flu, when it gets into humans, it can kill 50% of the people it gets into, but it's very, It's not transmissible. It's very, very hard to be transmissible. But theoretically, if you ever did have a bird flu that became transmissible, it could be very deadly. So this was the thing they were all waiting for and hoping for. And, you know, I sound like I'm being cynical when I say hoping for, but when you read my book, you'll see they were all hoping for it. And so Jeremy Farrar said, here it is. And they went crazy. And, again, they they gave up. A liability shield to the pharmaceutical industry that pumped billions of dollars into these new drugs. They forced everybody to take their vaccines. And it turned out to be, I think, um, maybe two or three hundred people around the world died of it. And it turned out to be a fake pandemic.
0: Yeah, and but uh, President Bush projected two million deaths. Because I wrote a book
1: that's That's what Fauci told him. And he mentioned Fauci and his presidential And yeah. you know, Fauci was running all the show then and and in 2009, they do a sw- another swine flu epidemic. And again, it turns out to be a complete fraud, utter fraud.
0: Yeah.
1: And there's a big scandal because WHO, they, they signed to, they forced all of these developing nations and european nations to sign sleeper contracts that required them to buy a whole bunch of vaccines from blacksmith Line. if who ever declared a full-on pandemic and they changed just before they declared it they changed the definition of pandemic so there didn't have to be any deaths you could have a pandemic that was just a case of no deaths nobody dying and that's what they did. It turned out to be a huge, and you know, again, the vaccines caused mayhem, caused neurological damage all over the world, and they had to pull them again. Yeah. And and so and then they did Zika, which was a fake pandemic. Zyka never was causing microcephaly. That was just a lie that Tony Fauci invented. They did a big scare with Ebola. So one, and they and now they've done coronavirus and they've taken all of the lessons they learned from all the other fake pandemics, and rolled it into coronavirus. And I want to make clear, I'm not saying that coronavirus is not a pandemic with it mm-hmm. kill a lot of people. It does. But, we, you know, we've all been manipulated by an exaggeration of cases, the exaggeration of deaths the obscuring of the data, you know, all of the manipulations that they've, they've done to us, which everybody who listens to the show already knows about. Um, but at the end of that chapter, um, I have a, a picture that,
2: uh, that somebody got from a Freedom of Information request, and it is a March Madness um, uh, graph, of all of the, you know, all of the different pandemics that he has fake pandemics he's tried during his career, all converging with the grand winner being coronavirus.
1: <laughs> and
2: he signed it, somebody on his staff made it. Oh. Okay. But it's Tony Fauci's triumph. Winning March Madness, and you know, it shows what it is basically a picture of his career, him trying every three or four years, a new fake pandemic, and finally hitting on all eight cylinders with coronavirus, and you know, it's like, uh, it's a joke, and that's the punchline, and you know, we are the punchline. Well, I can't thank you enough for doing the hard
0: work, and I want to emphasize that word hard and diligent work and discipline that it took to commit to the many hours i mean you I, I know personally we've you've had to cancel some meetings that we had because of you have the book deadlines so you, it's there. it's a wonderful book now, I want to encourage everyone to pick up a copy of this because there's a threat. The threat is you've read about it on my site before. Elizabeth Warren issued a letter to the CEO of Amazon to ban my book, to burn my book, The Truth About COVID-19, and along with other several other congressmen. So she may do the same thing for this book. I mean, that's her, but hopefully she won't because this week you and I and my publisher, Chelsea Green, filed a lawsuit against Elizabeth Warren for an injunction to prevent her from doing this in the future. So she will not impact your book.
1: Maybe. Yeah, I mean, there's actually really good case law on this. We all, you know, I have this case against Facebook, and it, the law in this country says that the First Amendment, under the First Amendment,
2: Facebook has absolute right to um, to censor. So Facebook's a private, you know, a, essentially a printing press and they can put what they want on and they can invite their own guests and they can exclude guests. They don't have to give any reason. But when the government tells them to censor, then it becomes illegal. And that's called the state actor theory because a private company can censor you but the government cannot. And if it appears that the government is censoring you, that's illegal. And so I'm, I'm suing Facebook on that issue, and we're in the Ninth Circuit now, but we're going to go to the. I'm sure that we'll end up in the Supreme Court if they if they grant us cert. But this other this other issue, I think the case law, our case that Joe and I have against Elizabeth Warren is even stronger because here is a public a powerful public official who is. Uh, who is ordering a um, you know a private corporation that is largely dependent on federal regulatory policies and federal largesse to censor people who disagree with her political position? And that you know that's why we had the revolution. And the, you know against England, we we said you know the king should not be able to silence people, and his ministers should not be able to silence people, and members of parliament. Should not be able to silence their political opponent. I think you know Elizabeth Warren's uh, a position on this is really frightening because I, I don't even understand how a liberal Democrat, you know, the, the, the Democratic Party that I grew up in, is a party that for which free speech was was sanctified. You know the ACLU. When <laughs> it defended the Nazis when they marched into Skokie, and uh, you know I defended them, and I you know what they're saying is repulsive to me, but you know I need to live and die for their right to speak, for their right to say it. That's how we live in our country. Our country is our democracy. Well, that's, how, that's how we used to live. Uh, it's dependent on the free flow of information, and when you have a important Democrat. You know, I want to ask Elizabeth Warren, do you believe in democracy anymore? Because she she clearly does not have faith in the people of the United States to be able to make up their minds about um, or to have to critically think about decisions. She thinks that they need to be manipulated. They need to be protected from information that she considers dangerous. And it evinces it a complete failure of faith in the demos, in the people, in democracy. And, you know, there, there's a lot of troubling things that have come out of our new reliance on these social media platforms in our country and, uh, and democracies around the world have need to struggle to figure out how to deal with that but censorship is not the answer and she ought to know better and um the fact that there's many people in my party who believe that censorship is okay 78 percent now um shows that uh, my party has lost touch or lost faith in democracy that it's hard to call yourself the democratic party when you don't believe in democracy anymore when you don't believe in the people
0: yeah so have you changed your i mean that is a really interesting uh commentary on on the, on the party so are you considering switching parties or uh
1: oh I, you know i still have faith in many of these people uh, you know the, the the people who were in the Democratic Party are driven by fear, and, and their and fear has overcome their capacity for critical thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't think we can abandon them as Americans, and I don't, you know, I, I'm not going to abandon them. I think my job is to try to bring them back around, and try to be a bridge between you know people of goodwill all over this country who believe in their art and the values of American democracy. And I try not to be political in what I say because I think politics, it polarizes us. I think the elites want us fighting each other and they want us polarized, they want us labeling each other. And I think what we all need to do is to reach out um, to people who are friends, people who are acquaintances, people who are misguided, and um and begin recruiting them into act into democracy. Right? That's a great recommendation. I'm
0: wondering, I know we're close to the end, if you have any final recommendation as to what you would well, advise to, you know, to address what? this whole issue, because it's it's the probably the
1: most yeah. significant
0: issue we've ever faced in our life.
1: Here's what I'd say, you know, two thoughts. One is that we're now at a critical point where they're about to poison 26 million children with a... Yeah. tens of thousands vaccine of children. That, you know, during the clinical trials, 20 people died in the vaccine group and only 14 in the control group. So the, according to Pfizer's own data, they're if you take the vaccine, you're 48% more likely to die. You're going to die less likely to die of COVID. Uh, but four times more likely to die of a heart attack. So for every life they saved from COVID,
0: they killed And That wasn't wasn't the child that either. That
1: was... Oh yeah, the the child was even worse because there's only 1,300 kids in that cohort. And we know that one of them was Jennifer Gary. And Jennifer Gary um, got seizures. She is permanently paralyzed and she is living off a feeding tube. And Pfizer reported her injuries as a stomach ache. You no. know they were lying. Now, if if one out of every thirteen hundred kids is paralyzed in the in the clinical trial, you can project that out and say well, there's twenty six million. Uh, if you do this twenty six million kids, you're going to have tens of thousands of people who are going to suffer those kind of injuries. So uh, giving this is foolhardy, reckless. It's it's again, it's sociopathic. Um, here's what I would say to people, we have to stop this, and this we all have to die on We cannot let them give it. If you are a parent and you let them give this to your child, you are not doing your job as a parent. If you're a doctor, you're committing malpractice to give this to a child. We all need to resist. I would say that every American who sees what's happening has to now start engaging in civil disobedience every day. That may mean, you know, going to a store and telling them if they demand a vaccine passport, that you're not going to patronize that store anymore. It may mean not resisting on the job. And, you know, do not quit. Do not quit. Make them fire you because then you have lost it and make them fire you. you know, right now, the best thing to make them fire you for is trying to take an emergency use authorization vaccine because there are no approved vaccines in this country available to any American. It was a myth. It was a hoax. It was a chicanery for them to say, oh, we approve this Cominardi vaccine. If you go on the website, we will tell you we do not make community available in the United States. Why are they trying to go after our kids? Here's why. The, the vaccines can only get liability protection once they are approved. The only way they get liability protection is if you're on the child's vaccination schedule. So, and then once, once the CDC votes among the child vaccination schedule, then they get liability protection even for adults. So they need to put them on that child's schedule so that they can start selling them in this country because they're not going to sell them until they get liability protection. Because of course you wouldn't I would want lawsuit, a that company if they didn't have liability protection. So that's why they're going after our kids. They need it to get that liability protection. And we need to stop them from, you know, from collateral damage. Going to cost to an entire generation of children, twenty six million children, on a vaccine that's been tested on thirteen hundred kids with catastrophic results. The other thing I would say, and this is in line with what I was talking about with you earlier about how do you persuade people, um, you know, to open their eyes to what's happening? How do you wake them up? Hmm? That's the and question. I talked to a friend of mine who was a really brilliant psychologist and social psychologist the other day, and he said the, if you, if the, the worst thing that you can do with somebody who is, you know, part of the orthodoxy is to try to persuade them directly. If you run at them and challenge their beliefs and ridicule them, you're not going to get any. And but there is a way to get them to open their eyes, and that's with the sophomore Socratic method, which is to ask them questions about their belief, to ask them, to challenge them gently with questions, to ask them, you know, if the vaccine doesn't prevent transmission, how can we justify mandating? How how do we think it can end the pandemic? If the is only tested on 1,300 children, is it right to give it to 26 million? Is it right to give it the Lancet studies as that not a single child anywhere in the globe, a healthy child has ever died from COVID-19? There are children who died, but they're all have these you know, really heavy duty comorbidities, very overweight, diabetes, asthma, et cetera. How do we justify giving this healthy child a child when they have no risk from COVID, and yet they they do have a profound risk for the vaccine? Is that okay? And to ask people questions, rather than challenge them directly, so that's one of the things I'm trying, and you know, something that you really to try as well. Okay, well, that's really
0: sage advice. I can't thank you enough for your dedication, your commitment, and your putting together this book as a resource. Again, I strongly recommend it. It's clearly, you, you definitely set the standard at this point. And my book was a good primer, but it was literally one sixth the size of your book. And you've got a lot more work went into it to document this. And hopefully it will be the catalyst to have Fauci resign at some point in the near future. So thank you for everything you've done. And actually I should mention that you've got an unbelievably great website. I subscribe to it every day out so many good articles. It's the uh the defender uh
1: Uh, dot com. Thank you, Joe.
0: Yeah, yeah. So it's a great, great site. It's well
1: thank you for everything you do. You've been doing this for a lifetime and you've been fighting back courageously. And you know they're really trying to destroy you now. And I'm really proud to be your friend and uh to be in the trenches with you.
0: Yeah, well Likewise, <laughs> it's, it's a team effort and you're, it's definitely, I, I firmly believe that ultimately we win in the end, but there's going to be a lot of challenges and it's probably likely going to get worse before, especially with this. I, I just, it's hard to go to sleep at night, just knowing they passed that and what what's likely going to happen. I just don't see any intervention. So many children are going to die and suffer needlessly because of this but it is what it is and we've got to go forward. And I really thank you for
1: compiling the data and giving us a strategy that we can make a difference. So thanks for everything. Thank you, Joe.